This podcast is a project of the Mass Cultural Council. We believe in the power of culture, the arts, humanities, and sciences to enrich communities, advance equity, and foster creativity. If we're ever going to get beyond the divisive policy differences we have now, we have to go deeper. We have to find where we share common values. And once we figure out where we have common values, then that makes the policy issues a lot easier to address. Hi, I'm Anita Walker at the Massachusetts Cultural Council, and welcome to Creative Minds Out Loud. Our guest today is the Reverend Steve Ayers from the Old North Church in Boston, and welcome to our program. Thank you, Anita. Great to be here. Well, you uh, clearly uh, occupy the centerpiece of American history, as does Boston, as does much of Massachusetts. And lo and behold, we're looking at some more anniversaries. <laughs> we, we are coming up on some, some big anniversaries, both for Old North Church and obviously for the nation and the city as well. Um, Old North is going to turn 300 in 2023, so we're trying to gear up for that to make some improvements to the campus, to add some new interpretive features. Uh, the big three projects we're working on are to restore our crypt, which is very popular with visitors um, who like to know about burial practices uh, in uh, the colonial era, and that project we actually help, hope to get underway next year. Uh, and then the following year we hope to redesign uh, one of our uh, gardens, or a couple gardens, uh, and install in that uh, the poem uh, Paul Revere's Ride. Of course that's what makes us famous. Everybody knows one if by land, two if by sea. Nobody knows that that poem was written on the eve of the Civil War, and it was written by an abolitionist. Uh, Longfellow was very sympathetic to the abolitionist cause, and we want to be able to teach about that uh, and teach about the role of poetry in uh, civic discourse. So uh, we are going to post the entire poem in there. It's a fairly long poem, as my designers keep saying, um, but we have enough space to do that and turn this area into an outdoor classroom. So that's very exciting. Actually, I discovered how long it was when you asked me to read it at one of your annual events to celebrate uh, the Old North Church and the poem. And I thought I was going to be reading one verse, and it, it is a couple of pages long, but it is a fantastic piece. One other thing about the North Church before we get into the rest of the 250th anniversaries, um, most people who have visited the North Church in the recent past um, probably remember the inside looking white. Yes, and that's uh, one of the, the third major project we're working on um, is to bring the church up to code, which means ripping up a lot of walls to put in new electricity, uh, new ventilation, but it also gives us a chance to restore the church to its colonial appearance. Right now, the color scheme is basically colonial revival, whites and soft pastels. Uh, and thanks to the support of the Mass Cultural Council and other funders, uh, we've done uh, a thorough paint analysis. And uh, when we're ready to restore the church, we're going to be able to bring it back to its uh, colonial splendor. Um, a lot more color in the church then. And what is really cool is up in the um, gallery archways, and uh, each there are uh, 20 of these, and in each one, is a cherub that was painted in roughly 1730. And they're intact, just buried under a lot of paint, and we are gonna very carefully peel away that paint and bring those cherubs back because uh, we firmly believe that America is in need of more angels right now. Oh, certainly, but that was a big surprise to you. 
Um, we knew it was the, we knew they were there from previous research. We did not know that they would be so intact, and that was the the real exciting piece of the research. And again, we thank Mass Cultural Council, the Cultural Facilities Fund, for helping us do that. So the Old North Church is going to be 300, but some of your younger friends in the neighborhood are turning 250. Tell us about a bunch of historical organizations are getting together, and um, there is a laundry list of 250ths that are going to start rolling out pretty soon. Right. We're already rolling through 250th anniversaries. Of course, we're uh, referring to the 250th anniversary of the birth of the nation, which uh, it, for most folks uh, goes back to 1776. Of course, we at Old North like to think that it really started on April 18, 1775, when we hung two lanterns in our steeple. Um, but the, the history predates that. and. Uh, Historical organizations, public historians, universities uh, in Massachusetts have banded together in a group called Revolution 250 uh, so that we can start to think about public celebrations so we're not just we wait until the last minute a year before uh, 2026 and say, oh, we better throw a big party, but we can actually teach about the history. So in 2015, we came across the uh, 250th of the Stamp Act, and we did a great production in a Downtown Crossing, um, a Stamp Act parade involved a lot of local schools, um, made replicas of the original lanterns that were hung in the Liberty Tree. It was a, a great event. Old North hosted another event that year where we talked about the sacking of Lieutenant uh, Hutchinson's uh, house, and Lieutenant Governor Hutchinson's house, which was part of the Stamp Act riots happened in the North End, and because he filed for an insurance claim, we knew exactly what was ruined. A very fascinating talk. So next year, for example, 2018, will be the 250th anniversary of the landing of British troops. So we're all beginning to think about what kinds of educational programs we can have that use the theme of occupation, which of course was very important in the beginning of the revolution. Occupation is certainly a theme that is very important uh, today as well. So uh, we're encouraging all our member institutions and other cultural organizations to begin to think about events like this. How do you work that into your programming so that um, we can teach the general public a much deeper understanding of our American history and uh, help us appreciate the values that are embedded in that history? One thing I firmly believe is that if we're ever going to get beyond the divisive policy differences we have now, we have to go deeper. We have to find where we share common values. And once we figure out where we have common values, then that makes the policy issues a lot easier to address. Unfortunately, we've abandoned uh, support for uh, history and the other humanities. It's been years since uh, we've taught civics in most schools. We need to get back to that so we understand what our history is, who we are as a nation. And if we can understand that and understand the values embedded in that, then perhaps we won't be so divisive as we work with each other. So there's more than just sort of um, having a party and a celebration because we've hit a, a birthday with a zero at the end of it. Uh, there's really a lot more um, a long-term benefit of thinking about where we've come from. Well, you know, if you look back to the bicentennial, it was a, a similar set of circumstances. America as a nation had just come out of the Vietnam War, which was very divisive. Our generation were running around as hippies in the streets, making everybody agitated. We had just been through the resignation of Richard Nixon, 
and the bicentennial was intentionally used as a way, again, to reassert our common history, um, to teach civics, and to get people to kind of reconnect uh, to America and what America stands for. So we look at that as an example. In Boston and in Massachusetts, that was also for those of us who run historic sites, that was an opportunity um, to do a, a great deal of improvement to our sites. Um, for Massachusetts, the bicentennial brought the National Park Service to Boston. Um, it was the uh, then that we started first night. Uh, it was then that uh, Faneuil Hall Marketplace was uh, first restored. Uh, so there were a number of great long-lasting improvements that came out of the bicentennial. And we're hoping that we can get civic leadership to understand the value of a big milestone like this as a way to renew not only our commitment to the nation, but renew what is one of the most essential brand identities of our state and our city, which is this is the birthplace of the American Revolution, and we still can be revolutionary. You know, it's interesting because um, while we have this wonderful um, legacy and advantage of being the birthplace of America, the place where people come from all around the world uh, to go to the Old North Church or the Paul Revere House or to experience the Freedom Trail, um, there is a lot of responsibility that comes with that benefit that we have. There's a, a huge responsibility, and, and unfortunately, often we're taken for granted. It's like you've been around for 300 years, you know, you'll be around for another 300 years. Well, it takes a, a lot of effort and a lot of support. Uh, when the National Park Service was brought to town, everybody said, well, that's going to fix the problem of, of maintaining um, all the historic sites, and it helped for a long time, but if you read the headlines, the National Park Service is facing huge budget cuts uh, under the current administration. They're up to about a $12 billion delayed maintenance problem, uh, and it gets worse every year. Uh, we, you know, all the sites in Boston are part of that delayed maintenance problem. We all have requests pending, uh, but there's no money to, uh, to help us deal with those. So um, we have to figure out um, working on all levels of government with private sector and philanthropy how we can get the resources together to make sure that these great icons of American history uh, survive for another 250 years. And once they're gone, they are gone. A replica isn't the same thing as being in the real place. You took me on a, a steep climb to the top of the steeple of the Old North Church, and there's, I mean, I just get chills thinking of standing in that spot. It's, um, you know, hundreds of thousands of people, half a million people or more, come to the Old North every year um, because we are really the birthplace. We are the start of the American Revolution. You know, thanks to Longfellow, um, the American Revolution was started by two lanterns in our church. Everybody wants to see and touch it, and it's so cool to say this, this is the original building, those are the original bricks. Um, you know, some things have changed, but it's basically the same. And, you know, people get in touch with their roots coming there. They're also, they love the fact that we're not just a museum. This, there is still an active church uh, that's worshiping there. Uh, unfortunately, some people may think that God has a checkbook and can write all the uh, maintenance, you know, bills for maintenance. And it so. doesn't work that no. way. No. <laughs> Darn. Well, actually, uh, you do give me an opportunity. Uh, you mentioned the Cultural Facilities Fund, and uh, we're thrilled to have celebrated $100 million of investment in uh, projects like yours over the last 10 years all across the Commonwealth. Um, but 
maintenance never ceases, does it? <laughs> it, it? It never ceases in the hundred million you've invested and we've been beneficiary of, of a few grants and we'll be back uh, again fairly soon. But a hundred million in of itself, that's about the delayed maintenance budget in the local Boston National Historical Park. Um, so it's great what uh, you can do, but the needs are huge. Uh, and the longer it gets delayed, the harder it gets to, to tackle them all. And again, it's stewardship, not just for Boston and not just for Massachusetts, because we're, um, we're preserving um, physical assets, but we're also preserving a story that the rest of the world is um, fascinated by and looks to for leadership. Looks to and, and they come to. I mean, a lot of our visitors are coming from around the world. Um, you know, what's most important to us is obviously our history and our values, but we recognize we're a key part of the tourism industry as well. Um, we don't get to charge the same room rates that the, the hotels or, you know, charge a hundred bucks for a dinner that the restaurants can in the neighborhood. But people come because they want to see the historic sites and we are a major contributor uh, to the economy and uh, need to be maintained so that we can continue to support what is the third biggest industry in Massachusetts. So Revolution 250, where can people find out more about all the different anniversaries coming up? Um, Revolution 250 uh, is uh, putting together a new website right now. It should launch uh, shortly. Um, as I said, we are currently housed at the Mass Historical Society, so you can get in, in touch with them. Um, and uh, you know, watch as, as we emerge in all the member sites and, and name any historical organization. Um, you know, right now mostly in Eastern Mass, but we're beginning to recruit organizations in Western Massachusetts as well. We're all in, involved in that. Uh, what I also want to mention is that beyond a statewide effort, there's a new nationwide effort being led by uh, the Smithsonian and uh, Mount Vernon and a number of uh, D.C., Northern Virginia uh, organizations. But it includes uh, historical societies from Minnesota and Wisconsin. We don't have Iowa yet, so we've got to work, work on that. Um, but, uh, you know, trying to say, okay, how are we going to use the 250th? to encourage people to know and love their history. So their working title now is called Made by U.S. Uh, and uh, we're looking at a number of ways of, of marketing our sites to bring younger generations uh, into the sites uh, to, to learn their history uh, and to value uh, you know, where we come from as a people and who uh, we should be as a people. So in the last couple of minutes that we have, um, I think we should talk about chocolate. <laughs> we can. We'll, we'll, we'll talk about chocolate, which is somewhat related to ma made in, made by U.S. Um, we have Old North is a historic site. It is not just a church. Um, we have two wonderful living history exhibits. One is uh, a colonial printing press. Uh, it's the uh, printing office of Eads and Gill, who were major printers. Uh, during uh, the Revolutionary Era, uh, King George called them uh, printers of sedition, which <laughs> they were. Uh, and uh, right now, if you go into that, you'll see us demonstrate the press by printing the Declaration of Independence. But this fall, on Constitution Day, which is September 17th, uh, we will be debuting uh, the U.S. Constitution, a replica. And to make this, what we've done is we've taken a high digital uh, res picture of an original constitution 
recreated the type for that and we're in the process of, of typesetting that. So Anita, I hope you can join yeah, us on that day. Awesome. You can print your own copy of the Constitution. It'll be a lot of fun. Uh, and so that's one of the, the programs we have. But the other one you refer to is um, the, uh, our Colonial Chocolate Shop, uh, which is named after a member of the congregation, uh, Captain Newark Jackson. So it's Captain Jackson's Chocolate Shop. Uh, and we demonstrate how chocolate was produced in the colonial era. We even give people a sample of it. And you might think that's a little frivolous, but it gives us a way to talk about the colonial economy um, Captain Jackson uh, was an importer and manufacturer of, of chocolate. He has an incredible backstory. Turns out he died while smuggling chocolate out of Suriname. Um, he died in a mutiny. Uh, and um, the, the mutineers came to a rather gruesome end. We've been able to research that. We're actually working with archives over in the Netherlands, uh, and we've just gotten the trial transcript of that. Um, but it, it gives us a way to talk about slavery because um, Captain Jackson was a slave owner. Slavery was very much involved in uh, the cacao plantations in Central and South America and also in the production of chocolate up here. Um, so it gives us a way to talk about you know, part of our history that we need to recognize um, but is not as easy to talk about. But you, you smooth it over with a little bit of chocolate and uh, you know, people are willing to you know, listen. And, and understand. So uh, one way to our intellect is through our taste buds. <laughs> and it's good chocolate, it by is, the way. It is really good, good chocolate. Colonial chocolate was a drink. Um, it was uh, heavily spiced. Uh, so if you sample our drink, um, you get pepper and vanilla and cinnamon and anise and numbers. But each chocolate maker would blend their own set of spices. Uh, what's uh, very wonderful about this program is that it's backed by the biggest chocolate uh, manufacturer in the world, the Mars Corporation, um, who are very interested in American history uh, and in the history of chocolate as well. Uh, and they are also um, big supporters of the Made by U.S. campaign, which is a national campaign. So we love working with them. They understand that labor issues are still uh, an issue in the production mm -hmm. of chocolate and are working as hard as they can as a major corporation to address those issues uh, and to recognize those issues. So they're very supportive, even though we're telling about what you might call the dark side of chocolate. So have a big bite of history with a side of chocolate. A lot of exciting things coming up over the next few years. I want to thank the Reverend Steve Ayers, another one of our creative minds out loud. Anita, thank you very much. To learn more about this episode and to subscribe, visit creativemindsoutloud.org.